It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Thomas D. Farron III. Farron volunteered to be a part of the first group of trained Marine Corps snipers in the Vietnam War. He accompanied various infantry units on their missions and received two Purple Hearts, five Presidential Unit Citations, and the Marine Corps Combat Action Ribbon for his service. Well, I grew up in uh, Queens, New York. Uh, most of my uh, life, was uh, spent on the block, so to speak, uh, growing up with the neighborhood kids. I was going to uh, parochial school at the time, Catholic uh, grammar school and Catholic high school. And uh, upon graduation from high school, uh, I had uh, I was playing high school football at the time. Got a scholarship to high school, and I, I was voted uh, most rugged. So with that in mind, I figured there was only one place for me, and that was the Marine Corps. So I volunteered for the Marine Corps in 1966, after seeing an article on Life magazine uh, about the Marines in Vietnam and uh, the Viet Cong and, and the whole uh, war, the beginning of the war going on, and I felt I needed to uh, be part of it. So I volunteered for the Marine Corps, and uh, after Paris Island, volunteered for infantry, uh, volunteered for the Vietnam War, got to Vietnam uh, in the infantry, and then volunteered uh, for snipers. So my career started out as uh, one of these volunteer kind of guys that— uh, uh, knowing that I liked the volunteer because I knew what I was getting into and somebody else was not just assigning me a mission, so to speak. And then uh, that would prove to be quite true later on throughout my tour and experience in Vietnam. Well, in terms of the Marine Corps, the the uh, the cliche, uh, we didn't promise you a rose garden, hadn't come, come about quite yet, but uh, it didn't take me but 15 seconds in Paris Island to realize uh, this is something what I, that I didn't really quite expect. But I knew the Marine Corps was the best, and I knew that if I was going to go to war, I wanted to be trained as a Marine. From a personal standpoint, I, I just uh, the Marine Corps had an image that I wanted to be part of and a legacy that I wanted to be part of. So from that standpoint, uh, I had no real choice but to join the Marines. Of course, I didn't make my father very happy at the time. 
In fact, he went down to the Marine Corps recruiter to uh, retrieve my enlistment contract, uh, saying that I was not of sound mind and that uh, I had been hit too many times on the football gridiron and uh, that I wasn't quite knowing, uh, you know, what I was doing. Uh, so given that, uh, of course, the gunnery sergeant said, uh, well, your concern for your son is honorable, but he's a Marine. So that was that. And I was in. Well, uh, in 1966, Vietnam was just something that was uh, kind of mentioned uh, occasionally on on the front page, mostly found itself on the second and third page. It was still young in terms of development. And uh, there was a lot of feeling that, oh, it's just going to be a short war and it will be over quite quickly. And in fact, to that end, I, I thought that if it is going to be a short war, I didn't want to miss it. So I, I needed to get involved as soon as I could, and uh, consequently joined the Marine Corps in April of 1966. I arrived in Vietnam in, on uh, November 10th, 1966, which of course is the Marine Corps birthday, and I thought that was uh, uh, quite ominous to have that as a starting point for my Marine Corps career. And uh, I was assigned to 1st Marine Division. At that point in Da Nang, you either went 1st Marine Division or 3rd Marine Division. So I was assigned to the 1st Marine Division and orders to the 7th Marine Regiment. From that point, I was assigned to uh, the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, and then ultimately Bravo Company. So I started as an 0311 infantryman uh, in November of 66. Uh, spent about six weeks as an infantryman doing the normal infantry things, night ambushes, uh, combat patrols, search and destroy missions, county fair operations. And uh, the Marine Corps at that point was just in the process of authorizing the use and employment of Marine Corps snipers. That is to say that they were now sanctioned uh, officially under the TONE, Table of Organization and Equipment, and that a platoon would be formed at each regiment within a division taking the infantrymen from the infantry units and formulating the scout sniper platoon. So at this point, I had a chance to volunteer for the scout snipers being newly formed up in Da Nang. At that point in time, as, as I read through history later in my career, that, uh, in fact, snipers were being used in, in the Marine Corps uh, initially from six, 1965, as I recall, but they were used in a in rather on an orthodox fashion and uh, unofficial fashion. Um, depending upon the tactical situation and the commander, uh, many of the commanders and certainly senior NCOs were from Korea, and they knew the importance of the sniper on the battlefield and its employment as a combat multiplier to the maneuver force. So consequently, they would employ snipers as you know you're the sniper for for this operation because they would know their Marines, and they knew who the best shots were, and then typically they would say, you are the designated sniper. Uh, in many cases, they didn't have any more sophisticated rifles than uh, their, their M14, but they knew how to use it very effectively. As snipers became to play more of a, a role with the infantry, we were finding Marines going to Okinawa on Liberty, getting uh, hunting rifles and scopes, to uh, makeshift a, a sniper rifle and then go bring it back to Vietnam and use it accordingly. A fellow by the name of Captain Russell within the 3rd Marine Division was the first one really to put together a platoon of snipers under an experimental mode to see how they would be employed. Uh, he was very successful in this, and as a result, the Marine Corps went ahead and authorized the use of snipers. And at that point, 
uh, Captain Jim Land and certainly Carlos Hathcock came on the scene as the trainers to that end. The Vietnam War, by its nature being a guerrilla war, uh, the use of snipers were an integral part of both sides, uh, just by the nature of the type of warfare, the terrain, and the conditions. The conventional wars that we have seen in the past of armies massing certainly was not the case in Vietnam. It was a small unit operation type war, and as such gave a lot of levity and uh, license to the use of snipers. The Viet Cong and the NVA were quite good in the use of their own snipers, and of course they've been at war with the French before we even got there. So uh, they knew the the terrain, certainly, and tactics and how to fight on the countryside. And uh, we came on board not knowing that type of warfare. We still had World War II and Korean mentality uh, in our leaders. So Vietnam was a brand new experience for us fighting in the jungles, and that's something we had to adopt to. Not only did we find the jungles as a challenge, but then we had the use of the helicopter, which became paramount to our uh, success on the battlefield. Uh, Not necessarily the success of the overall war effort, but certainly on a battlefield. uh, uh, Those things, those new implementations of tactics and weaponry were something now that the commanders were finding very, very useful against a hardened enemy that had been there in place and knew how to fight us. When the first scout sniper platoon was being formed and and I had volunteered for it and been given orders to the sniper platoon, we formed up in Da Nang, at which point we went to Marble Mountain where the sniper school had originally been set up. There we met our sniper instructors, one of which was a retired Marine gunnery sergeant by the name of Gunnery Sergeant Mitchell. He had been a Korean War sniper. Um, He was retired. The Marine Corps brought him back to active duty for the exclusive purpose of training snipers. There were a couple of other sniper instructors there as well. Mostly they were marksmanship instructors. But Carlos Hathcock arrived on the scene as an instructor, but he was more of a instructor from a standpoint of coming and going. He spent most of his time in the field. And, and frankly, when he was with us, uh, I, there was a certain degree of frustration that you could see with, with us as new trainees in the sniper field. And I knew he couldn't wait to get back out in the field and, and do what he did best. And uh, while instructing us was something he did well, I knew his heart was really in the field. So to that end, we, we saw bits and pieces of him. He'd come and go. And of course, it's, it was only a two-week school at that point in time. And uh, recalling back, all we pretty much did was shoot and uh, use a radio for artillery fire. We were already infantrymen, so we knew how to uh, tromp through the bush, so to speak, which was something we were trying to get away from now. So, uh, but we did have tactical experience from being uh, former infantrymen anyway. Now we have to learn the effective use of the new rifle, the Remington 700, with the Redfield 3-9 to variable lackey range scope and its employment and how it functioned, this bolt-action rifle and, and getting away from an automatic rifle. We also had to use radios uh, for the first time. And, of course, being a PFC, we weren't given a radio uh, at the time. But now as snipers, we had radios because we were the eyes and the ears of that maneuver force. And as such, we had occasion to really see the battlefield as it unfolded. And uh, being in a very 
advantageous position on the battlefield, we could see the development of it and act accordingly, uh, such as calling airstrikes or calling artillery to enhance the commander's intent and the completion of his mission. After graduation from sniper school, we went back to the regiment awaiting orders for assignment to the next infantry unit. My first unit of assignment was with Mike Company, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. And of course, snipers arriving on a battlefield at this point was something completely new. Uh, and in fact, my rifle, which has a long bull barrel and a scope mounted on top, uh, kind of looks like a shotgun with a scope. And in fact, some of the guys, uh, would, some of the Marines would say, is that a shotgun with a scope? Boy, that could really come in handy. And uh, I remember checking in and, and the first sergeant saying, uh, well, that's the skipper's rack, that's my rack, and that's your rack. Uh, you're going to be our bodyguards. And I said, well, wait a minute, first sergeant. You know, um, uh, we're snipers, and, and I think we can enhance the uh, battlefield with the use of snipers. And let me tell you how we can operate. And at that point, I explained to both the first sergeant, the gunnery sergeant, and the company commander how to employ us, and, and they were pretty sold on the idea. So at that point, we worked with the uh, weapons platoon and then eventually were assigned to different uh, squads, as needed, the squads that were typically going out on patrols. That was one of the drawbacks, perhaps, of a sniper in that you were always busy. If you could use a ratio, about 25% of the time was downtime in that you'd spend some time in the field, come back for rest, R&R, whether it even be going out of country or even a unit being pulled back to, to man battalion whole watch, protect the battalion uh, area. This was programmed into the typical infantry's schedule of uh, in the field, combat, rest. A sniper, on the other hand, would go out in the field with the infantry, get into contact, and... Once the infantry unit came back, the sniper would be reassigned to another unit in contact. So we literally spent our entire time in the field, one mission after the next after the next, or one assignment to one company after the next after the next. It's great for collecting presidential unit citations on your, uh, on your ribbons because you're always in contact with the enemy one way or another. To that end, uh, it was uh, quite an interesting experience. But on the other end, it was very fatiguing. And uh, after about nine months of that, it was, uh, it was time for my own rest. And uh, it was time to go on R&R. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. As we would get assigned to an infantry unit, typically we were going to a unit that we didn't know. And a sniper showing up on the scene, while the infantry knew that we were there to help them, typically we, we were not connected, you know, to the hip, so to speak, as you would find infantrymen in the foxhole. Uh, we were different. We had a different rifle. And uh, we even had a different mentality. We were looked at as... Uh, executioners, uh, part of the murder incorporated uh, syndrome that was uh, bestowed the snipers. Sometimes when we'd arrive on a scene, the infantry would just part out of our way. Perhaps maybe it was that uh, thousand-meter fighter pilot stare that we had that uh, got their attention. I don't know. But uh, we were different, and they knew it. And so the bonding was really never there. We operated alone for the most part. We would be with an infantry unit, uh, right down to a fire team of four men. But we never bonded with them. We never got really close with them. Um, It was rare to do that, only because we knew that within another week or two, we would be with another infantry company out in contact again. So making friends was just not something we did. Even among us, within the, the sniper team itself, the two of us, we would rotate teammates for that very purpose because I found that if we were to get too complacent, uh, that was a detriment to our survivability on the field. And you just didn't want to do that. You didn't want to take anything for granted. You didn't want to get too close to your teammate because you just never knew if we were going to make this particular mission or if he was going to come back alive or not. And typically we'd, we'd go six weeks to eight weeks and then change out to a new teammate and start all over again in that process. And and you would bring different levels of experience that way as well. So it worked out pretty good, and it was pretty much the policy of uh, the sniper platoon to rotate sniper members within teams. Our relationship with the infantry was one of support, first of all. We were there to support the infantry. The concept of operation the maneuver of what the tactical situation dictated, and we were to enhance the combat multiplier of that commander on a battlefield. We were from the infantry ourselves. We were all 03s. We slung the M14 over our our, uh, shoulder. We had our backpacks. We had our three canteens. We did all of that. All we had now was a different type of rifle and a different type of mission. So we certainly had the ultimate respect for the infantrymen. Their view to us, however, was, uh, as I made mention, uh, Murder Incorporated is on the scene, and, and if you want to confirm kill, he's, these are the guys to do it. So uh, depending upon the tactical situation was depending upon how we were employed. Typically would be used as a blocking force, and that would be to gain a tactical advantage on a battlefield, typically key terrain, and then observe the battlefield. As the maneuver force would go through a particular area, the enemy would either have two choices, fight or flight. If they fought, the infantry would take care of them. If they were to move out of position, that's where we could take care of them. And um, there were conditions where it was pretty much like ducks in a shooting gallery. Uh, You could only do that... 
to a point because after a few rounds being fired, you'd have to move because your position was compromised just by the sound of your rifle, and uh, it would gain their attention as to your presence. Moving just a few hundred meters would make a difference and still continue that type of operation, but invariably we'd have to move, which brought up another situation of risk because now you're occupying key terrain. Uh, good fields of fire, good observation, and invariably that key terrain is also key to your enemy. And the chances of running into the enemy were there. They were always omnipresent. Um, and that's something was our biggest concern was capture. And that perhaps scared us the most because we were literally hanging out in the breeze, so to speak. We did try to operate with a, a small unit, typically a fire team of four other Marines that would provide rear security for us. But pretty much we had the first 180 degrees to our front, and they provided security to our back. But nonetheless, a, a team of six men is small in comparison to an overriding squad of enemy soldiers coming upon you or knowing that you're there and then coming after you. So we, we always had in the back of our mind escape routes, uh, and we'd plan these escape routes. The last thing we wanted to do was tangle elbows with the enemy on some piece of terrain and try to fight it out. First of all, my weapon was not designed for a firefight. It was designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was out. That was to reach out and touch you from the furthest distance away. The idea of, of putting a bayonet on the end of our sniper rifle just doesn't exist. There's no bayonet lugs on it. So to that end, our opportunity in our existence was not to get into contact with the enemy. The typical uh, table of uh, organization and equipment was that the uh, sniper team had the one automatic rifle. We started with the M14, and then in April of 67, switched over to uh, the M16. And the sniper rifle. That was it. That's the only two weapons we had. We didn't have a sidearm, which we thought would be a preferred nice piece of gear to carry just in case. And uh, in one particular experience on an ambush, uh, which was not designed to be an ambush, uh, our mission was to uh, go into this village and take out a village chief, who was a known uh, collaborator of the enemy. And the commander wanted uh, this village chief put out of action. How we did it was up to us. But snipers were along, and in the event that we couldn't get into the village, we could take them out during the daylight hours. The infantry unit was a company-sized operation. This was with Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, August of 1967. We were traveling in a company-sized operation, search and destroy. And I was traveling with this one particular platoon at the time, and our mission was to be dropped off. The infantry moved out, and we crawled away. The six of us crawled away from the infantry unit, and we had, we had enemy following us all the time. So we would crawl away from uh, the company uh, to get out of range and get out of sight. And then uh, once we felt confident enough, we'd get up and proceed on our mission with our checkpoints and uh, those kinds of things. We had set in on a riverbank this one particular afternoon, waiting for the cover of darkness to go into this village and take out the village chief. And we just happened to be at the right place at the right time, or proverbial wrong place at the wrong time. And we were on a MSR, a main supply route of the NVA, this NVA unit. We didn't know it at the time, but we just happened to be on this location. 
And we had set in uh, at 50% alert, the six of us. Uh, and I was asleep at the time. And I was awoken uh, by my teammate to the sounds of the closing of the hammering of the bolt going home on the other side of this river, which was no more than about 15 meters, 20 meters wide. Heavy vegetation and foliage on both sides. And we could hear the distinct metallic sound of an M14 and AK-47s. Well, the M14 was surprising because that's a friendly uh, weapon. But certainly the AK-47 was the preferred weapon of our enemy. So we knew there was something wrong. And as we could see movement across the river, uh, we decided to set up a hasty ambush. Uh, A hasty ambush is one that can work very, very successfully because it, it employs the the element of surprise, which is a principle of warfare. And that in and of itself can be a combat multiplier, the element of surprise. And we had that. We were right on their main supply route coming across the river. They set across their point to see if that infantry unit was still in the area, not knowing that the six of us were harbored right underneath this wooded tree line. And as the point looked up and around, signaled to the other uh, forces across the uh, river to move forward, which was perfect for us. That's where we wanted to get them, right in the river. Once we decided to set up this hasty ambush, uh, we communicated back and forth with the use of hand and arm signals. The lieutenant took out his K-bar, and I notioned to him as to what was that for, and he was going to jump this point, the enemy point, the security force. And I said, I'll use a sniper rifle, at which point he agreed. The intent was to get as many of them into our kill zone. Our kill zone was only, you know, 45 degrees. And we knew that if we didn't get as many as we could, we'd have to deal with the others at some point in time. Well, I still had my sniper rifle. And I'm looking up down at my sniper scope at this fellow that's 15, 20 feet away from me. He's up on the bank, and I'm down, still covered in camouflage. I used a parachute to kind of break out my outline, and we had the vegetation to break up our outline. And he, I'm sure, never thought for a minute that we were right there. But, of course, as metallic sounds typically do betray you, one of our Marines went to the automatic mode of his M16, and that sound triggered this NVA soldier who uh, had the biggest AK-47 I've ever seen. And as it swung in our direction and his hand was going on the trigger, I was looking down at my scope, and I had the scope on nine power. And as he moved his head around, I couldn't keep track of him. I moved it to three power, and it was just like, oh, to heck with it, and just pointed in the general direction. I fired first. And tactically, a sniper will always fire first because in an ambush, that's one confirmed kill. And a sniper is usually a little bit more trained in that regard for ambushes. Even though you're not supposed to be in ambushes, but the policy was the SOP of the unit was snipers would uh, trigger ambushes. Somebody has to trigger it, the sniper will trigger it. So I triggered the ambush. As he turned his AK-47 in our general direction, I knew it was at that point that he had to go. And looking through the scope, I couldn't quite keep him in sight, so I just pointed. The round hit him in the face, uh, stopping all of his actions. He dropped his AK-47. I ran into the kill zone to get the AK-47 because my sniper rifle 
was literally obsolete in an ambush. The ambush pursued for about five seconds. We had 15 or so dead in front of us. Not one of us received a scratch, but we still didn't have them all. The other part of the main body had literally ran through the jungle area uh, in an attempt to regroup. Unbeknownst to us, what we had in this kill zone was a Willie Peter bag, one of our Willie Peter bags that they were using, and in it, it had the listing of 42 Arvin spies, the position of all of their 81-millimeter mortars, as well as their 57 recoilless rifles. That information went up to battalion headquarters and turned into a battalion-sized operation. We didn't know it at that moment, what was contained in this uh, Willie Peter bag, but the enemy wanted it badly. They wanted it back. Not knowing that, uh, but we did expect to be hit again. The enemy, in fact, regrouped, came down river and around and started back in on us. We were six men, as I mentioned before, and during the, the ambush, we expended most of our ammunition. Uh, and that's where fire uh, discipline really comes in. It is very, very important uh, because we probably got a little carried away in this, in this ambush. We redistributed ammo. I collected what I could off the, the bodies, uh, AK-47s and those kinds of things, using their, their weapons, which was certainly better than my sniper rifle. And uh, as would be typical of any uh, heroic story, uh, we got on the radio, called for the uh, company to come down and save us, and, of course, they did. The cavalry to the rescue, so to speak. And the enemy was caught in the pincher movement, the company coming down and us to our back to the river, and while the enemy wanted that bag back and all the other information that we had, they just didn't want to fight a two-front battle. Uh, we had a Air Force spotter plane over us. Uh, to this day, I think I'd, I'd love to give this guy a hug, even in Macy's window. Uh, he stayed on top of us, protecting us, giving us the eyes in the sky. And uh, at one point, he finally, we saw these tracers going up at him, and he marked their limits, their left and right limits, so we knew exactly where they were, and we could set up our fields of fire accordingly. And he threw down two uh, red smokes. And I, 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 I'm not sure if I was seeing things or what, but I knew his arm was outside the window of his Piper Cup. And I'd like to think he had a 38 in it shooting at the enemy as they're shooting traces up at him. And I'm thinking, this guy has got bigger Goyunis than I could ever hope to have. But at this particular time, when the ambush was over and we had the bodies out in front of us, we hadn't gotten them all. And in fact... Most of them had escaped the kill zone of our ambush because we were only a six-man team. And they were in the process of regrouping and coming back in to get us. It was at that point that I realized that this was a pretty scary business and my sniper rifle was not going to afford me the personal protection I needed. And hence the use of captured enemy weapons and equipment that I used for my own personal protection. After the ambush, we went back to the company area. I asked to go back to the regimental area to, uh, to regroup, so to speak. It was a pretty hair-raising experience, uh, considering that snipers are not supposed to be in, in ambushes. Our mission is long-range death, not close-in hand-to-hand. At that point, we got back to the regiment, and I had an opportunity to go down to the NCO club, and I met with the regimental sergeant major, Sergeant Major Mike Makovich, which is still a Marine Corps legend in, as of today. He sat down next to me, and I said, Sergeant Major, I had a hair-raising experience the other day. I was in an ambush, and I went on and on. And, 
and he was very polite enough to listen to me. But uh, finally decided it was time to shut me up, and he, he looked at me with his cold, gray, steely eyes that certainly reflected his experience of three wars, and he said, Moose, he said, you want a forty-five? He said, the day you have to use your forty-five is the day you wish you had a rifle. Click. From that point on, I carried two weapons. I had my business end of the uh, mission, my sniper rifle, and I had my automatic rifle to rock and roll. And it wasn't three weeks later that we were caught in a similar situation, and I was rocking and rolling without the sniper rifle. So to that extent, and to this day, when I'm uh, graciously offered the opportunity to speak to Marine snipers at graduations, I tell them about that experience and about that uh, their sidearm, while it's authorized now, the use of the 9mm pistol, uh, the day you have to use that pistol is the day you wish you had a rifle. And uh, I think you can see the lights coming on across the audience. And, and even though it's not T-O-N-E, the use of, of their own personal automatic weapon is something that's very, very desirable. The rifle that I had captured and used in this ambush, I had to turn in because it was an automatic weapon. And, and a policy was that, well, you could bring home war trophies they had to be rendered, especially automatic weapons, had to be rendered ineffective. So you had to plug up the, the barrel. I turned it in because we had numerous opportunities to gather enemy weapons, uh, a, a spoils of war, so to speak. So I turned it in as part of the intelligence gathering effort. Five years later, in uh, 1972, I was reporting at the 1st Marine Division as a second lieutenant, for duty uh, with assignment to the uh, 1st Marine Division as an engineer and being briefed by the assistant division commander as all officers will be briefed as to what the policies and procedures are and what the general expects of his officer corps and, and those kinds of things. There was a particular room that we were in were uh, surrounded by war trophies and uh, there was an AK-47 up on a wall and of course an eight, one AK-47 looks like the other as does an M-14 look like but I decided to read this particular AK-47, and much to my surprise, on the plaque that was on it mentioned this um, team from Delta Company 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, in, in August of 1967 that had sprung an ambush on this NVA reconnaissance unit. I, we didn't know the unit, what it was, but it happened to be a reconnaissance unit. Had we known that, I think we probably would have ran for our own lives because uh, that's somebody you don't want to tangle elbows with. But... Uh, Anyway, the plaque went on to read a six-man patrol from Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, uh, sprung this ambush, which resulted in a net effort of 42 armored spies and the position of all of these rifles. And there it was, my AK-47. I jokingly asked the general if I could have it, and he uh, jokingly told me in no uncertain terms, uh, which is not repeatable for, uh, for TV use, but uh, no. Uh, and who knows what happened to the AK-47. It's probably in somebody's garage right now, and it's not in mine, unfortunately. Sniper's movement was based on a number of variables, predominantly the tactical situation. You had degrees of, of level of contact. And I don't recall exactly the terminology we used, but for conversation's sake, we can use a number code. Uh, one being eminent and four being very, very remote. So if we were in a Category 4, let's say, we could go sling arms and walk with a fire team or a squad out in a particular area. If contact was eminent, we would certainly change the tactical situation and our 
employment of, of the members tactically. We would spread out. We would have weapons outboard. We would be uh, moving very, very diligently. And then once we got into what was called our hide position, we would typically go to that hide position on our stomachs, primarily because we didn't know what was beyond that hide position. And if the hide position was something that we didn't particularly want, we'd, we'd find another one. But we'd invariably crawl to it or get on our hands and knees and move to it. We certainly would not just walk up to it, sit down, and open up our sea rations and, and have an afternoon lunch. It was tactical. In our movement with the infantry, we did not want to discern ourselves any more than we had to from the infantry. We wanted to look like them. Uh, Certainly, my weapon was different, and as such, I had a piece of burlap that I wrapped around the scope to break out the outline of the scope. So, if another sniper, which is what snipers do, fight snipers, if another sniper was looking for a target to shoot, your first target is another sniper. I wanted to blend into the infantry as much as possible. So we didn't have different uniforms. We didn't have camouflage on our face unless we all had camouflage on our face. But in my bag, I had a piece of uh, camouflage nylon that came from an Air Force parachute that was used for a drop of equipment. It was a very, very large chute, and I took about a 10 by 15 piece of uh, this nylon camouflage chute. And it could roll up in a ball, and it fit very nicely in my pocket. And that was something that I used just to break up my outline. And uh, I could get underneath it, and it would just cover my, my silhouette in the bush. So we weren't as sophisticated as the Marines today with their ghillie suit, which never would have worked in, in the jungles of Vietnam. Uh, you would probably dehydrate before you did anything with, uh, with the weight and the heat of that kind of suit. But we would use whatever tactical and camouflage that was available in that particular environment. But once we got into our hide position, it was well camouflaged. But camouflage-like harassment in the Marine Corps is continuous. When you're moving into the hide position, uh, if you're crawling or, or on your hands and knees, uh, you're going to be coming into contact with the indigenous type of creatures that are very prevalent, in, especially in the Southeast Asia region. This is where the, the element of strict discipline comes in as a Marine. I would recall standing on a gridiron at Paris Island and wanting to scratch my nose so badly, but I knew if I raised my hand, I'd get chastised, of course, beat back then. And, and it was that kind of discipline that you exerted in those kinds of situations that you just didn't let it bother you. If you had bugs on you, so what? The idea of giving away your position was more detrimental than the idea of getting bit by an ant or some other creature. Certainly snakes were of concern, but if you didn't bother them, they they really didn't bother us, so to speak. The primary mission of a sniper is to counter-snipe and to create harassment. Um, I had a particular interesting mission one time that transcended division lines, which was very, very unusual for us to go to another division. This was with Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 26th Marines, operating up in the Quezon area. There was an NVA sniper up there that we had affectionately named Zorro. He was very mysterious, and he had already killed eight Marines, all headshots. This guy was good. We found out through his dossier from the uh, S2 that he was an NVA 1st Lieutenant, who was responsible for all the tactical 
psychological warfare in the area. He was responsible for the landmine, the placement of landmines against the Marines, and he was also a master sniper himself. So we were going after this enemy sniper in his backyard, and that was perhaps the scariest mission I, I ever endured. But I saw what he had done to the infantry. Now, I never really knew what the Marine sniper could bestow upon the enemy in terms of psychological warfare. But once I saw what he had done to this infantry unit and the morale of this unit was so decimated as a result of this enemy sniper operating in the area, I finally realized the power of a sniper. And I also knew that we had to get this guy one way or another. So we went out to hunt him. And this was the first real hunt of of my tour in Vietnam, hunting one sniper against the next. Being a sniper is a very, very personal business. And I say that not only as a Marine sniper, but Army snipers, police snipers, and, and and those law enforcement agencies and military that have this capability. Sniping is a very, very personal business. Typically, your infantry have on their bullets to whom it may concern. Your bullet, however, has a distinct person on it because you can lay in wait and watch and observe that person, that target, as we referred to him, not trying to keep that personalness out of it. So we've referred to the enemy as our target. But, in fact, you are waiting at for your moment in time to end this person's life. And that's where it becomes very, very personal. In one particular case, we waited for an enemy soldier to finish his lunch, after which we decided to take him out. So you decide the moment, the time, the place where you're going to end the soldier's life. And to that extent, it's a very, very personal business. Yes, the infantry does have that experience on occasion, especially in closely confronted hand-to-hand combat situations. But generally speaking, the infantry does not necessarily see their enemy. It's a matter of fire suppression on both sides. So your business as a sniper is very, very personal. You see that person, you can see sometimes their eyes. And that's the last thing that you remember of that person. It's like taking a Polaroid picture, the snapshot in time, as as you slowly draw back the trigger and the rifle is fired, and the rifle comes back up, and the scope comes back down on your target, and you see that picture, and it's seared in your mind forever of that last picture sight. And I can literally remember every single one of them. The very first mission I I had, again, was with uh, my company, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, and I had a brand-new rifle. Fired it on on the range for accuracy and zero, but now I was using it for the first time in combat. My first target was out of range of our typical uh, range that we had for the rifle. Our maximum effective range was 1,100 meters. This target was 1,300 meters. Well, I knew that the mathematics of the trajectory was not linear. It was logarithmic. That is to say, as the round got further out, the velocity of it was decreasing more readily, and consequently, the round was dropping in elevation. So I calculated a rough uh, calculation as to what the bullet would do at 1,300 meters. And of course, my very first shot was a miss, which was uh, kind of an embarrassment to me. But as we had planned for and trained for, 
my spotter, was able to see that round going downrange by putting his spotoscope a quarter out of phase of focus, and you're able to pick up the vapor trail. And then he could say left or right, up and down, as to where the impact of the round was to the target. And after that first round is fired, you're recycling the bolt, getting the next round into position to fire. That's SOP. So after the first round is fired, the rifle comes back down on the target. I'm in the general vicinity. In this case, he said right five, up five, meaning five feet. And I just held over the crosshairs over the target's head, who at this point was just wondering what happened, and the second round went down and got him. Unbeknownst to me, there was uh, a few Marines from my company behind me going, yeah, clapping, and that away, that's the way to go. And uh, it was a pretty proud moment until I had a chance to think about it. And I went off to the side and thought about it and thought about it. And despite the training that the Marine Corps gives you and prepares you for combat, the taking of a life is something that is very, very personal and not something that you're really able, you're trained to do from a standpoint. It's a personal thing, and some people can't handle it. Uh, Some people can't take a life in that regard. So once I got over that, I turned the feelings of emotion, of sadness to some degree, of killing somebody through my own hand, to now of one of sportsmanship. And let's go get the highest numbers. And in fact, at one point, my teammate and I um, led the 7th Marines in, in the amount of kills, but soon to be beated out by other teams that were much more successful than us. Certainly, uh, the infantry operates from the standpoint you're there to protect your buddies and you're there to save each other. That's what you're there for, for each other. The idea of taking an enemy off the battlefield is one that you know that that's one less that's going to kill an American force. When you think of the two greatest Marine snipers uh, in my mind that I can think of are perhaps Carlos Hathcock and Chuck Mahaney, between the two of them, have perhaps over 300 confirmed enemy kills and twice that many unconfirmed. Those are a lot of soldiers that never came south to kill American troops. And in that regard, it is certainly a well-worth attribute on a battlefield. To me, uh, sniping is an art. That is to say that You could do the mechanics of sniping. You know the muzzle velocity of the trajectory. You know the droppage. You have charts that are are given to you, and you know at a certain distance the round is going to be affected through gravitational forces accordingly. You know that. But what you have to calculate for is the wind. The wind is the greatest variable affecting the strike of that bullet on your target. And I found that before I would fire, I would try to visualize what that bullet looked like going downrange as to the variables affecting that bullet. I know it's dropped, but I have to now calculate what's happening to it from a left-to-right situation because you've got crosswinds affecting that bullet. I would look at the distance. The distance was, was known either through the range finder in the scope which we really didn't use that much. In fact, mine was ineffective because I, I did something very unfortunate. Left it against a tree one time, and the sun came over, and the sun went through the lens and burned the, the bottom of the vernier, which was a very dumb thing to do. And I still to this day, you know, when I think of equipment, I didn't take very good care of my equipment. So the rangefinder was, was inoperative. 
But doing range estimation all day long and logging it into your logbook is something that comes as a second nature after a while. And we would even have bets with each other as to within 10 meters of a target out to 1,000 meters. Was it 1,000 and 10 meters or 999 meters type of thing? So your, your range was pretty, usually pretty well on. You were trained in that, and you constantly did it. But the biggest variable was the wind. And we would use the wind uh, through evaluation of trees. That was usually your best indicator. You know, the, the, the flags, the smoke. You didn't have flags out there. You didn't have necessarily smoke. People, The wind coming off the ground and the trees were your best indicator. And then you would look through the distance. You may have crosswinds that would zero out around. The bullet could literally go out the barrel and be affected by a left crosswind and then be reaffected by a right crosswind and cancel each other out. Or you could have a solid left or you could have a solid right. You had to understand what was going, the forces acting on that bullet to get to your target. And of course, you're coming out what's called a cold shot. You're firing that shot from with a cold barrel. Your dope typically came from a range where you had a hot barrel firing round after round. And that's why you constantly kept your rifle zeroed on a company area out to a known range, and you'd zero it from a cold shot. So that first shot out the barrel was true. And all you had to calculate now for was the wind. Uh, my tour in Vietnam was a full 13-month tour, a month and a half spent in Bravo, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines as an infantryman, and then the remaining 11 and a half months or so as a sniper with the 7th Marines. Uh, upon completion of my tour, I returned uh, home to Camp Lejeune and uh, was discharged in June of 68. I resumed college studies and had the opportunity to come back into Marine Corps in 1971 as a commissioned officer uh, to be a pilot. Uh, things didn't work out with my eyesight, surprisingly enough. Uh, great eyesight for a sniper, but I uh, had a hue impairment of uh, slight colorblindness, which is uh, very undesirable for a pilot, but highly desirable for a sniper because you can't be deceived by camouflage with this hue impairment. But nonetheless, I was a quote-unquote fallen angel uh, without wings. So now um, the uh, officer corps offered me the MOS selection and said, pick one. So I picked uh, combat engineers and then subsequently went back into the infantry as an infantry officer. That was Lieutenant Colonel Thomas D. Farron III. Make sure to catch the second part of his interview on October 14th, where he talks about the psychological impact of being a sniper. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present, if you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, 
revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.